Welcome back to the flip side. Season three back underway. I'm Galen Clavio. It's been about a month since we last talked with y'all, and it's great to be back. Great to be back into the swing of things, and uh, great to be partnered back with Brian Moritz, who's joined us back on the line. We have not no no strange cast replacements, fortunately. Like uh, <laughs> we did not pull a Jimmy Smiths for David Caruso exchange or anything like right. that. So you're you're still in good shape. So am I. Uh- that's good. Good. We haven't added our cousin Oliver yet, although there is still time. To, although that's a season five edition, so you right. know we still have time. I believe season three, if we're going on the pretty much theme, was the the trip to the Grand Canyon, the three episode arc, the three episode Grand Canyon arc. If my wife were here, or if she listened, neither of which is true, she'd be able to uh, to uh, very easily correct me on that. Um, that's, uh, that's, so, yeah. so I don't think we have. I don't think we have any trips to uh, the Grand Canyon. I don't think season three would last to uh, to IAX in Arizona this year, um, unless we did like a thirty week, like a thirty week season, which seems a little much. But who knows? A thirty week season might be. Um, I don't know. It, I don't know if the, maybe maybe the audience is ready for that. I mean, you know, I, theoretically, you don't need seasons in podcasts. We just kind of do them when either of us needs a break and we're like, Oh, let's continue this conceit to a ridiculous level and hope that the audience (laughs) uh, never questions us. But, um, I kind of, actually, I kind of like this format to some degree because I almost feel, you know, like, so I listen to Bill Simmons podcast, but I don't want to listen to every episode and it's like, it's a never ending thing. Like he's on episode like 120 or whatever it is now. Right. And, you know, to some degree, I almost like the episodic nature of things. and, And I feel like, if you if you've got a mind to do it, you can change up the, a certain approach or a certain angle, uh, and and a, even even the sorts of things that you would talk about, uh, you know, given given uh, a particular season of a podcast, if you're doing it that way, it's kind of like the seasons of Serial, except mm-hmm. not, <laughs> except we don't put nearly as much thought into the overriding arc of our seasons as Serial does. Um, Correct. <laughs> Which is to say, we put no thought into None the whatsoever. Talking. Like, I mean, our, our entire the- our entire show prep was a four text exchange between Brian and myself at about three o'clock this afternoon. Uh, which is which a lot of times is which might be a record actually that's true. The, that is a, that is a amount for the uh, for the amount of show prep a remarkable amount of forethought for us on on this uh, <laughs> i mean comparatively speaking absolutely right so how is the simmons podcast i uh i, I maybe I, I didn't bring this up in our extensive prep but i'm but uh, that could be an interesting topic is to talk about simmons a little bit um because i have some some i have some thoughts on what he's kind of become and kind of his media space in the media world now that the ringer's out um and i've never been a big listener to his podcast for no reason that it just i have a lot of podcasts and it just don't really have a place for it in my in my feed so is it is it still comparable to what he was doing when he was at espn is it still something that's solid is it worth me checking out Um, i mean if i'll say this if you liked his podcast uh at espn it's basically the same thing Uh, And, you know, and and it's, you know, the it it comes out on on the the Channel 33 podcast uh, channel that they've got coming off of the ringer. And so it's mixed in with some other things. But the Bill Simmons podcast itself, I mean, look, sometimes he's got, you know, some really interesting guests like he had uh, Tony Kornheiser on uh, last week. And that was actually, I thought, a really interesting uh, conversation. He had James Andrew Miller on the week before, mm-hmm. a couple weeks before. Sometimes he has non-interesting guests like Michael Rappaport or Johnny Bananas. Um, 
he's got some pretty regular features. Uh, Joe House has become a much bigger part of the podcast. He does a show every Friday. The the Cousin Sal NFL lines are back, so those just started up. It's pretty much the same stuff. And I, I but look, I mean, I've always liked Simmons podcasts. I mean, I don't, I'm not gonna say I like every single one, but there's there's no podcast where I like every single one. Uh, I find it to be good, solid conversation that I can listen to while I'm running around uh, town or walking around campus or something like that. Okay. Yeah, we can we can we can talk more on some of this. I, I I I like I said, I have some. I, I've noticed my attitude towards Simmons, for lack of a better phrase, kind of kind of changing. And with, since the Ringer and the HBO show, and so I'm interested in your thoughts and kind of riffing on that. Um, but our, our our only standing feature of note really is our craft beer of choice. Um, and I'm going with it's a repeat, but it is my favorite beer, Switchback L from Vermont. And if you can see, I'm holding up to Galen in I the. And the Skype, it, they, they've started bottling and they have the little like stub bottles, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's like, like a red stripe bottle, basically. It is. It's a red stripe bottle. I always uh, associate this size bottle with Utica Club. Like the, no, we, don't, uh, we don't have that here. Uh, no, you would not have that beer. Now, it's a uh, uh, made in Utica, New York, and they always uh, would uh, they use these types of bottles when I was growing up. So I was associated with that. Uh, but I was in Albany a couple weeks weeks ago we stopped at a beer store saw my favorite beer bottled so I picked it up so there you go switch back ale so i'm actually i brought to the party the uh the kirkwood cream ale uh, you can Ooh. see it well you, yes. you folks at home can't see it brian certainly can nice big bright red and white can uh very mild flavored uh, cream ale it's, it's very nice it's um you know it's it's a an easy drinking late summer beer i would say Excellent. I've become a big fan of the cream owls. I've had them a couple, you know, Rochester up here in New York is famous for its famous for its Jenny cream owl, the, the one of the big local breweries. And a lot of a lot of the microbrews in, in the area are coming out, are, are doing cream owls. And they're good. They're great for this time of year. They're nice. They're easy drinking, kind of fit that fall, that early part of fall where it's too early for a pumpkin or for an Oktoberfest. But not really into the citrusy summer stuff. So no, that's a good uh, that that looks really good. It's a great looking can too. Very it is, good. It's a uh, nice nice looking can. I like what they've done with it. Yeah. So so we so we did have a uh, we we did have our our couple of topics today. The thing I wanted to mention about excuse me with Simmons was I don't know. I I, I subscribe to the Ringer newsletter. I get it. I, I, I read through it or the the newsletters for the Ringer, his news site, kind of playing off of the HBO. Uh, show, um, which I actually haven't watched because we just acquired uh, a means to watch HBO, um, uh, HBO through HBO Go. I think is the app we're using. Anyway, we just acquired and and of the stuff we're catching up on, Simmons's show is at the bottom of it. And I don't know. It just it and, you know. Correct me if I'm I may be wrong on this one, but my sense is that you know in the year that he was kind of between when he got canned at ESPN versus then when he started up at HBO. Um, and now with the show out, and he's not writing a lot for The Ringer. Um, he's doing his podcast, which is very successful. Um, he's doing the show, which by a lot of metrics is not so successful. And more importantly, I think with the show, what more interestingly is, you know, we both follow a lot of sports media people. I don't see a lot of people talking about the show. Like there was the first week when Af- he had Aflac on, and Aflac went on the F-bomb rant about the Flategate. But like it's almost like Simmons is 
just another guy, and, and like he he doesn't have that same, you know, c- sports cultural cachet anymore. Like it doesn't seem like he, like like he's somebody people are talking about and interested in. He's just kind of a guy right now, and I might be wrong. So if, you know, if your impression is different than mine, I'd love to hear it. But it just it it doesn't seem like like people are talking about or care about Bill Simmons anymore. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, every time something happens with Simmons or with his show, it's all over, you know, Richard Deitch's column, and it's all over awful announcing. I mean, certainly in media circles, it gets talked about a lot. Sure. Um, you know, and from a public perspective, um, I don't know. I don't know that he was necessarily making a lot of of, of inroads as far as, you know, like the everyday fan talking about what Bill Simmons was saying for quite a while now. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I don't think it's been that way for, for years. I mean, I think okay. when he started Grantland, and I think it's easy, it's easy for people like us to kind of get into this, this, you know, we're in this bubble where we're paying attention to all the stuff that's going on in sports media. And we're paying attention to all these commentators who, who primarily focus on sports media. And, you know, Simmons was constantly a, a a person that got talked about because he was on, you know, he's on NBA Countdown. He obviously, you know, he was pretty well seen with Grantland, but he wasn't doing that many columns with Grantland towards the end there. Right. It was mostly his podcast and he was doing videos. Um, so, look, I, I think to some degree, I think he kind of, I, I do think he's trying to make the TV show work, and I don't think it's working particularly well. And I think it's just, it's trying to be, something that 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 format and the the current era of media really don't ha- um it really can't sustain uh-huh. um but I think that's a different issue. I actually think the ringer is doing a pretty good job. I don't like it quite as much as I like Grantland, but I actually like it quite a bit i I read it pretty regularly now, and I think the new writers are really good. I think they have a lot of decent podcasts i mean i I like I like their podcast personalities and their topics for the most part. So I think it's a nice hub of things like that. And they've actually branched out into areas that Grantland really never touched. Like they, they have a podcast on college football. They have a, a, a regular soccer podcast. So those are, those are all good things. I, and I, you know, there was something in the podcast he did this past week or last week, I guess it was with Tony Kornheiser. And he was talking to Kornheiser about, you know, you know, he, he did, you know, Kornheiser had been a, a sports columnist for many many years with the post Mm -hmm. and he was you know talking to Kornheiser about you know like what that transition was like going from writing to tv and and Kornheiser said something along the lines of you know I I felt like I had started to repeat myself when I was writing and I Mm -hmm. felt like you know at, at a certain point it became difficult to to write and when I started doing the, the TV show, I was like, okay, this is the new thing, you know, and this is, this is the thing that's going to, you know, end up taking, um, a lot of my creative juices and, and mm-hmm. Simmons kind of agreed. And he, he made what I thought was a really telling comment, which is that, you know, his, his philosophy is you have a certain amount of, of time in a particular creative pursuit before you, you you know you end up having to change like do something else and and I think there's something to be said for that I mean if you look at the if you look at the folks that are out there who are the great columnists who have sustained over like forty you know thirty forty years in the profession nobody in the current landscape I mean you have to go back to like the Red Smiths and the uh, the Jimmy Cannons and uh, um, 
oh my god, Jim Murray. I'm blanking on the name. That that but that era, I don't think anybody now you would you would put in that. I mean, Lupica's been writing for forty years, but he hasn't been. You know, he became a caricature of himself and 10, some, 15 years ago. And it's true, and and even even with some of the the you know the halcyon names you you rattled off there, I think sometimes we, much like the old blues masters, we are uh, we are hesitant to um, compare their heydays and their later years uh, and 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 say, well, you know, maybe the maybe the stuff that the guy wrote in his sixties and seventies wasn't quite as good as what he was writing in his thirties and forties. Right, right, um, right. It's just a different era when back then. We just accepted that that was, you know, the person's going to be writing until they die on press row, basically. Um, right. So I, I do think that there's a shelf life to some degree. And I think that, um, I think Simmons, to some degree, he's pivoted a lot to being on radio and, or on podcasts and being on TV. And, and I think that that's probably a good thing in as much as, uh, you know, even the style that Simmons popularized, the kind of long, you know, very robust, very tangential sort of of sports column. I, I just don't know that the audience in this particular era is is looking for that sort of writing to the same well, degree. To the same degree, and also, it's not as unique a voice and style as it maybe was in two thousand, two thousand one, or two thousand two, kind of when you know Simmons was. I was saying heyday, or like when he was really. Coming into his own, and now that now there's you know, you know that's to, to his great credit is that he popularized and mainstream that that era area of writing. It's interesting you say that too. Um, I hadn't thought about that about him needing to you know almost needing and kind of new creative outlets and, and finding new outlets. I'll have to give his podcast a little bit more of a listen, um, just to just to get a sense uh get a sense of that because he is a pretty good interviewer. I've give him credit. I give him credit on a lot of that when he has good guests on, um, and I like Kornheiser a lot. So um, that should be that would be interesting to uh, to see. So all right, so which of our four topics do you want to uh, kind of head in? Hey, head in let's first? just let's just tackle the big one. Is is foot is football really dying? I mean, you know, uh, the, this okay. is this was so. This is obviously something. I think we've talked about this a little bit before. I, I may even have gone on the record saying the exact opposite of what I'm going to say tonight. Uh, All right. But, but this this really rose to the forefront in the immediate aftermath of the Thursday night opener for the NFL last week, okay. where Cam Newton uh, not only took a variety of, of very vicious hits to the helmet, uh, and and there was there was one moment in particular right at the very end of the game where he looked like he probably needed to come directly out of the game. Um, So not, not only did that happen, but it became obvious on review that the Broncos were targeting him in the head and Mm -hmm. that the officials seemed to be uh, incapable of protecting what's one of probably the three or four most important players in the NFL right now. Mm -hmm. So, this led to a a significant number of people talking about how it's obvious that football is doomed uh you know when this is happening and how can how can anybody pretend to be supporting this and you know that this is awful and then we went about our business and everything else was fine and everybody right. everybody sat down and watched college football on Saturday everybody sat down and watched the NFL on Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening and last night mm-hmm. and you know i i'll say this 
what got me thinking about this was all of the, the talk about, you know, you know, player safety and, and people not being able to support the league because of the, of the, the severity of the hits. And I just like, you know, I, I feel like to a large degree, the, the people that say those sorts of things, they mean very well, but it's mm-hmm. almost like, it's almost like they're trying to wish something into existence when the reality is very, very different. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that for a lot of people, the assumption has been that, okay, we're going to see all this evidence come out about brain trauma and CTE and the dangers that football poses. And people are going to stop putting their kids into football and it's going to lead to this mass, you know, divestiture of, of football from people's consciousness and they're going to move to other sports and man, I'm just not seeing that. I mean, I don't. I don't even see a dent being made in in the attitudes towards or the popularity of football. And while I, while there's a lot of people out there who maybe from a moral perspective are very right in saying that football should die unless it radically changes to become safer to the players, I don't. I'm I'm really I'm getting to a point philosophically where I don't see that happening. I okay. I think we've almost gotten to a point where we've saturated the marketplace with these concepts uh, and these, these, these studies and things like that regarding brain injuries in the NFL and just injuries in general. And it's almost as if as, uh, collectively as a population, most people have been like, okay, mm-hmm. like we're, we're, I mean, we understand that that's, that what we're watching is it's certainly not safe and it will never be safe, mm-hmm. but we're not going to just stop watching it. Uh, you know, with the idea that we just can't deal with the horror. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we're watching barbarism, but we're cool with it. Um, it's, I mean, you know, I, I, I see parallels in a way to the, you know, this is an, an exact comparison, but I do see parallels to the idea of what we always, what we've heard for ge- almost a full generation now with the growth of how soccer is going to grow and become dominant in America. And what, what you've heard for, you know, since we were, maybe in high school or definitely in college or just out of college, you and I was, you know, the, you know, more kids, more youths are playing soccer. They're going to grow up and their kids are going to play soccer and they're, and, and it is going to take a generation or two to cycle through. And you're starting to see that a little bit. Um, but it was always the, like the, uh, well, it's going to happen. Well, now it's going to happen. Well, now it's going to happen. And, and, and I see a similarity to the idea of, of, you know, of football dying or people not playing football. There's a lot of talk about it. But you're right. People are still watching. Will Leach had a great piece about this. I want to say in The New Yorker uh, this week or online in The New Yorker. I'll, I'll put it in show notes. Um, but it was basically like, like uh, you know, repeating a lot of what you kind of said. It's like the idea that the NFL can absorb all this horrible news and all this bad news about player safety and head trauma and, you know, the horrible things that players go through. And everyone's like, wow, that's terrible. And then the next day, you know, they're setting their fantasy football lineup. They're watching it. Um, I do. I, 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 I have a couple thoughts on this. I wonder how much this has to do with, you know, one of the things I do a lot of my research is I look into – what's called the sport ethic and it's just these the attitudes that elite at the sociologists have found elite athletes uh ascribe to and one of them is for you know for shorthand playing through injuries playing with pain and i think that that's such a, a inculcated part of sport culture especially football culture and very tied to 
ideas of, of manhood and hypermasculinity, that that's not going away. And I also just view, I, I feel like that influences our, our our collective public perception of it because you have, you know, the, the players doing it. We grew up watching it. We grew up celebrating athletes who play hurt, who play through pain. And there's still the money issue is, yeah, these guys are getting their brains beat in, but you know what? They're making $10 million a year. I'd get my brains beat in for $10 million a year. Well, no, you wouldn't. Nobody, you know, nobody would wish what a lot of former players are going through. But it is this, that cognitive dissonance of we know what the, we know this happened. We know this is happening, but we still love football. And I don't know. Why do you think? I mean, what 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 is it about football? Do you think there's anything? Let's turn Is there anything specifically about football, the game, the culture, everything around it that you think is kind of making it immune to all of that? Well, I just think that it's. I I I I don't even know if I can properly answer that question the way that you phrased it, and that's not your fault. Um, I think the idea that oh, something is identified as bad and therefore it changes or goes away. Like that cause and effect that people have become used to doing with certain things in society. Mm -hmm. I don't think it applies to something like football because I think football is, it's a sport for a lot of people. They, they were like, okay, we know that football is violent. We know that football is, you know, is a tremendous it's tremendously problematic in terms of the health of the participants, but we also make the assumption that the participants are aware of it. And I think the participants themselves are aware of it to some degree. Now there's some that are not, but more so current players than past players. Well, I, you know what? Maybe I don't, I'm not totally certain that, 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 you know, just because we have better medical knowledge and can specifically say what a problem is now, I don't know that we can turn around and say, well, people in the old days just didn't know about it. I I don't, I don't necessarily think we can make that leap of logic because I think even if you, even if you, you know, if you're in the 1960s and you can't like specifically point to a reason why, football is bad for your health, you know the way that you feel after games is not the way that your buddies who don't play football feel. That's true. You know, I mean, I think people knew that to some degree they were they were putting themselves in some sort of risk. They may not have known exactly what kind of risk. But anyway, mm-hmm. I, I think I, I think that, to, you know, a lot of a lot of the way that that we and I say we, and I, and I think it's a relatively small group of people who keep making noise about this. And, you know, it's it's journalists and and academics, you know, both, I mean, you, you certainly fall into both of those categories and, and you, know, <laughs> as, you know, as do I. So we're kind of a unique podcast to be talking about this, but you know, I don't know that we represent a group of people who have a, a an opinion that's really going to resonate with a lot of folks out there. Um, Cause we're looking at it, maybe not me, maybe not us specifically, but people in our line of work look at this and say, well, this is terrible. How could anybody support this when you can obviously see what the results are? Well, this isn't, it isn't smoking. It isn't, you know, it is, it isn't right. something that, that people are like unknowingly subjecting themselves to. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that from a consumer standpoint, if there's something that you like, you're not necessarily going to be worried about the the actions of the participants. Now we can say, 
right. that's that's not how we want society to work. But I mean, you know, gladiatorial combat was popular in the Roman Empire for hundreds of years, and that was obviously terrible uh, for the participants, and no one really cared because it was entertaining. Uh, and, and I think that expecting large groups of people of varying educational and economic backgrounds to engage in the wholesale cutoff of, of a, an entertainment form that they find supremely enjoyable is, is just, it's not really plausible. I think a lot of us would like to believe that we live in a society that would be able to do that, but we certainly do not. Right. And, and, and I think too, part of it is, you know, we can, you know, there's so many cultural, family, economic, you know, there's so much that meaning that we as football fans, we're both football fans, that we bring to, to the sport and bring to football that they're very emotional and they can be hard to overcome. They can be hard to, you know, that can drown out for a lot of people, I think, all this bad news. Like football's bad. Pro football athletes, you know, they pro football players, they deal with so much you know, awful stuff. And I can say that and say that, yeah, but my God, the Buffalo Bills are the link to my childhood. They're the link, still a link to my family. I remember, you know, there's there Sundays at my grandparents' house. They're calling my mom after the game, and oh my God, this team is terrible this year. We'll go off. We'll talk about that. But they are. This is this is gonna this is gonna be a terrible season. This, I, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> I'm all ready to be done with this season after after one game. But I but I do. I think that you know. To ignore, that's a very real connection for a lot of us, whether it's pro or college. And I think that a lot of times we, you know, as journalists slash research people, I, I, I think sometimes in the pursuit of what we do, we can overlook the that um, that emotional tie of fandom as being something that's very real for people. And it's not just something they do to escape their menial job every day like it's a real thing and i think that that you know that's still very strong for people and i think that you know just because players get beat up on it like you said i don't think that's strong enough to overcome that emotional thing it's one of those great you know great or kind of famous psychological things that you learn you can't you can't overcome facts with emotion when you're arguing with somebody. Like if somebody hates Hillary Clinton and loves, the, you know, supporting Donald Trump because he hate he or she hates Hillary Clinton, you can throw all the facts at them, but you can't overcome that. That you can't overcome the hatred with facts. Like like the psychology has shown that, and I think that's what we're seeing with the NFL. We have all the facts about how awful the sport is for a lot of its players. But we can, it's not it doesn't overcome the emotion of that we the emotional value we have toward football. Well, and, and I mean to be to be really mercenary about things, mm-hmm. is there a moral obligation to care about the well being of a football player? That's that's that is a question. I mean because the, the, because yeah. because I I mean. I think I think my answer to that would be, and this is an imperfect answer, but working on it, and I'm working on the fly here. I would say, as long as we are working under an assumption that the players ha- are aware of the physical risks they are entering into, the potential long-term neurological, physical, all these things, if they're entering it willingly and knowingly, um, then 
I that that takes I don't know I don't say that puts me moral puts us morally in the clear but that takes a lot of the edge off I think yeah I mean and and this, I think where this gets sticky is when people say the NFL needs to be doing more to protect players and I mean that sounds great in 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 you know in isolation that's that's a great thing that somebody can yell on Sports Center or whatever but like what does that mean really. Right. Well, I mean, you, I mean, there, there's certain jobs in 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 American in any society, not just American society, that are dangerous. And right. I mean, we we like to we love to pull the this is just a game line out whenever it suits our moral purposes, and then sure. put it right back again when you know we want like sports to be some kind of social change element. You know, like it's just mm-hmm. a game when it comes to player safety, and it should be safer. But you know, sports means something to society mm-hmm. when Colin Kaepernick is is you know is kneeling for the national anthem. I mean, you know, like right. we love to have it both ways on that. But let's just take the injury side of things. Um. The the idea that you know the, the the NFL needs to make the game safer for players, there's only so much you can do without right. fundamentally changing the nature of of the game. It's kind of like I mean, look, takes take like dangerous occupations that are out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, mining or or lumberjacking or, or firefighting. Firefighting. I mean, there's just there's just literally some things you can't change. Uh, and, and in those professions, the, I guess the argument is, well, you know, those are life and death situations and, and this is just a game and we can change the rules of a game if we want to. But right. if you, you change the rules enough, now you've basically like changed the entire package uh, right. surrounding it. And that almost seems um, that's as unlikely as anything that we've talked about here. Right. Yeah. And and, and you, there's only, you know, and, and you hear the hollering, you know, we NFL must do more to protect players. NFL must do more to protect players. They call it they call it roughing the passer penalty. My God, you can't hit the quarterback anymore. This is, you know, you know, the, the, they're legislating defense out of the league to use my, my favorite Mike Wilbon quote that he says at least three times a week during football season. And, and, and so, yeah, it's kind of a. You know, what do you want football to be? Do we want, you know, is safe football seven on set, probably seven on seven passing drills, which would probably get great ratings. It's it's going to it's basically arena league. But, you know, anyway, it's uh, I don't to answer the question. I don't think football is dying. Although it's funny, I didn't watch hardly any NFL this this Sunday. We had a perfect weather day and it was our our family. We had we had a we had a family day. We went for a hike and. So I just saw the end of the Bills game, and I didn't really follow much of what was happening in the NFL. And it's it's always surprising for me. Like reading about the NFL to me is a lot of times much more fun than actually watching the NFL. Um, you know, what, reading the stories about the week and the and the planning that goes and, and uh, the storylines around the game and the games themselves just are often I don't know. I, I find these, a lot of times I find the NFL a lot more interesting to read about than to actually watch. I was falling into that trap myself for a while, and I've actually I've watched a lot of football the last two weeks, and okay. um, I actually I'm, I'm learning to enjoy the actual on field stuff a lot more than I was the last few years. So I don't know. I'm not sure what that I'm not sure what that means, frankly. Yeah. So, but getting to your other so we have another kind of football related question we can parry into that yes. one before getting to our other a two. Li- a little lighter um, on this one. Yeah, a little lighter. So this was uh, you posted this question on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Sunday, I think. Yeah, it was Sunday, and uh, so I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you throw it out there. So my my question was this, and it, and it was based on there was a game 
there was a game-winning field goal attempt, and it was it was a made attempt. Um, and I don't even remember what game it was in now. But I got to I got to thinking, you know, at what point on the field can you get mad at a kicker for missing a game-winning kick attempt? Uh, right. So so you know, like what yardage is it acceptable for him to miss the kick? And and be like, well, that was a tough kick. That was a long right. one. Versus, I don't, I can't. This is a professional kicker. How could he miss that kick? Right um, now, you know, and it's funny because I threw the the first number I threw out there was fifty two yards, and everybody which else, which is which yeah. is fair. It is a significant distance, but I I thought to myself, well, I mean, you know, the. the well, I'll get to why I was thinking this in a second because someone actually posted a chart today that backed up my thinking process. Right. But, you know, people are coming in and saying, you know, like 45, 47, 46. Okay. Go ahead. I, 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 I went 47 and I went 47 for an obvious, very specific reason. Yes, because you're still a bitter man. Right, because <laughs> life would have changed for Western New York if one man had made a 47-year-old field goal 26 years ago. Would it really, that was, though? Uh, give me this, okay? It's literally <laughs> all I have. Did you see that game Sunday? It's literally all I have um, to go for. No, that was the Scott Norwood miss. The wide right in yes. Super Bowl 25 was 47 yards. Um, and I do think – so I, I it, it's interesting because I I think I know where you're going with yours, and I saw the chart that, that somebody had posted. Um, and it's one of those things where kickers have gotten so incredibly good and so incredibly accurate that I do think that anything under 50 yards, I have 47, you know, I I actually do feel like 47 is like a good number, Norwood notwithstanding, because like anything, anything under less than 40 for a professional kicker should be a gimme the way the, the way the kickers are. Waste the way the numbers are, and look, all of these are t- are of course field and weather specific. A blizzard game in Green Bay in January is a lot different than kicking in a dome, stipulated. But still, anything under forty yards is kind of a gimme. I think anything definitely fifty-five and over is well, you you give it a go. that 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 that's that's give it a go. But I feel like that that like forty to fifty-five is for a professional kicker. You you could still make it, but and again, I, I feel like from growing up, this is kind of a nostalgia thing, but from growing up, fi- a 50-yard field goal just seems so very long. Well, but we grew up in an era where Rich Carlos was still running onto the field barefoot to kick field goals. I mean, I mean, like, like that was 25 years ago, man. I mean, you know, I, things have I, progressed I, no, since then. I, I, I realize that, but I think that's where our under 50 – um, I think that I'm trying to explain where it comes from. I'm not saying it's rational or right or that the numbers bear it out. I think that that's why any why the under why the numbers tended to be lower and under fifty. Uh, I mean, so, I get that. Um, I mean, the, the chart is really interesting because if you look at the chart, you know what you see is that the if you go back to 1990 when you and I kind of came of age as football fans, I would say sure, sure. The um, the average. 40 to 49 yard field goal was completed and I'm doing kind of a running average here approximately 58 to 60% of the time okay, okay yeah. even the 30 to 39 yard field goal was only completed approximately 75% of the time that's which is crazy to think about now, jump forward to 2012 2013 
Mm-hmm. The, the 40 to 49 yard field goal is completed over 75% of the time, and the 50 and over field goal is being completed at a higher rate than the 40 to 49 yard field goal was being completed in 1990. I mean, we're talking about 65% or so here. I mean, so, yeah. so I would look at it and say, you know, 50 yards, 52 yards, you're at the 35 yard line for the snap mm-hmm. if, if you're kicking a 52 yard field goal if you're able i mean if you're able under normal circumstances to hit that more than half the time i'm going to expect you to be able to come up when when the rocks are on the line and and be able to knock it through the uprights i I, that's fair i'd still you know you know you're still you're looking i'm looking at a chart right now you're still looking at about a 60 something percent it's fascinating to look at you know the norwood line you know at 91 his his uh the percentage in Norwood was just about a 50%, which is lower than a 50-yard field goal is today. It's amazing how good kickers have gotten. Like, that's one of the untold stories of this, like how ridiculously good and automatic kickers Com- have gotten. Compare, like, so 65 yard, 65% or so for 50-plus-yard field goals right now. In, right. 19, seven, in 1969, the completion percentage of 50-yard field goals was at approximately 8 or 10%. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's nuts. Like that right. degree. And it's been a linear pattern up. Like, I mean, right. it, it really has been. I mean, I mean, it, it, on some level, you always get mad at the kicker when he, when, when they miss, when he misses the kick, no matter how far it is, unless it's like a saint situation this past year weekend where they're kicking the 61 yarder. And that's just, you know, that, that feels recordy. And I know it's not the record, but it, that, that feels a little more, that, that feels a little more, um, but it is it, it. But I. But that's why I think you know. It's, you always get mad at the kicker if the, if they miss the kick. Um. What, well, I was thinking about this after I saw you, you texted me this and I, and I saw the chart, and I and it's one of those things where, I, I remember when I was a, a high school football reporter and I'd be on the field after a game, like waiting for do interviews and waiting for the, the huddles to break up, and I can remember standing at like a thirty-yard line of, on a field, like a field in Binghamton, just waiting. And looking at the goalposts, and you realize just how far forty yards is to kick a football. Like it's one of those things. Like, like it is. Like I think one of the weirdly untold, fascinating stories of football is how incredibly good and automatic kickers are now. Like yeah. it sounds. It's always one of those things that sounds stupid when you start praising kickers and, and stuff. But like, stand at a thirty-yard line. Like in a high school football field, look to the goalposts, and the goalposts are, I think, narrower in the NFL than they are in high school. Yes. Um, and, and look, and, and and look down there, and try to just try to kick a ball forty yards, much less a football, much less under a game situation. You know, it's one of those like, of course they should do it. They're professional kickers. I get that, but the the it's why I've I've never liked the idea of like changing the point after or moving it back. Um, I don't supremely care that they move it back because the, the numbers bear that out, but it is, it's almost this idea like you're penalizing kickers because they're all just so good at their job now. Well, it's, I mean, this is a terrible pun, but you kind of have to move the goalposts. Like, (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, You're look, right. I get of that. All, yeah. Of all the things in in football, especially that that you would do or that you could change, the the field goal situation is the one you'd 
probably have the easiest time changing and the least cultural resistance to changing. Absolutely. Because, you know, there's there's been this long-standing attitude that football, like that kickers aren't really football players. Right. And that that's, it's kind of like the embarrassing part of the game for a lot of football mm-hmm. players is that a lot of, so many games come down to, to field goals. Right. And I think that certainly since most coaches were not former kickers, There's a lot of them who I think prefer a game that keeps changing the rules to marginalize kickers, and instead what happens is kickers just keep getting better and better, which makes them harder and harder to marginalize. Right. And now, I mean, it's funny because, you know, in today's age, I would argue that kicking is one of the more highly developed skills, like the elite the, the the difference between the elite kickers and everybody else is kind of like the difference between the elite quarterbacks and everybody mm-hmm. else in that it's there's a real marked distinction between the, the the people that do it really really well you know the the Steven Guskowskis and the Adam Vinatieri's and mm-hmm. the guys that are just kind of okay like the Graham Gano's or, or you know people like that right. I mean it's like um that means something and I don't know what else you could do right now to really change the 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 difficulty level of kicking. I mean, you know, you could you could narrow the uprights a little bit more, but then you're getting into like arena ball territory. Right. You you could um I don't know what else could you do at this point. I don't I don't think you can unless you like devalue the field goal. I mean, the only way to do it would be like kind of like have like 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 under forty yards and only be worth two points, or I don't know. That's about that's about it. But then yeah, you're getting into too much of a gimmicky thing. I think and um, yeah, I mean, and it's like you could incentivize longer field goals. Like you could make sixty yard plus field goals worth four points. But then you're almost. But then you're incentivizing field goals. Versus going for versus it. Versus going for it. And so you want to avoid right. that as well. Right. So, all right. So uh, let's let's do the origin story one next because um, I mean, I think about this a, a lot, a lot. Not a, just about food, but in general. So I, I, I noticed this um, during, our, during our gap between seasons. And it was – so I sent Gail on a picture. I'll try to remember to put it in show notes. It was the uh, th- this was on the back. We got like organic cheese ball, cheese puffs uh, as a snack at Wegmans, and this is it's a little blurb on the back of the box, and it's the snick snickaditty story. I don't know how you pronounce that. Snickaditty, sure, snickaditty, and it was snickaditty was born from the imaginations of two moms who wanted healthier snacks that didn't scrimp on flavor on the flavor or fun that their growing broods and friends would really love. Dot dot dot. I don't know the the. I don't know why there are ellipses on the on the end of this. Yeah, that, that makes didn't make no a lot sense. Of sense. No. Thanks for choosing Snickety. We hope that you you and your family have a healthy day. Signed, Mary. Well, Mary, we did love your snacks. They were wonderful. <laughs> but I was thinking. But I was thinking about this, and it seems like you know, not every kind of fancy or organic uh organic food they all all, not all of them but a lot of them do seem to have this like this origin story that they have on the package and that they want to talk about um and it it doesn't drive me crazy i'm just fascinated i've always been fascinated by kind of like this cultural um that's what i'm looking for this cultural desire and need to have an origin story like one of my you know, it's very famous in the tech world, right? Like you had your like HP was formed in a, in a garage and like or like, the you know, 
the you know the YouTube origin story where it was the guys in Indiana who were doing uh, the video video of the elephant or whatever. Yeah, they were actually from Illinois, but yes, go okay. ahead. Okay, <laughs> thanks though. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but so, but so it's very famous in the tech world that every every kind of startup has its own origin story, and it's not just hey, we wanted to make a thing and we made a thing. It's this it, it's this real story. Um, the first research paper I ever did at a at a and had at a conference was it was out of historical methods class I took at Syracuse. And I looked back at media coverage of Super Bowl one, newspaper coverage of Super Bowl one, because the origin story, the Super Bowl origin story is one that like at first nobody cared about the game and it wasn't sold out and it was on two networks and wow, nobody cared about the Super Bowl and now it's the Super Bowl. And I went back and studied and I was like, no, it was really widely covered in a lot of newspapers. It was on the front page. It was the lead story in the New York Times the next day. It was not this little thing. But the the, the origin story kind of took over. And, you know, maybe with, with, with organic snacks, we can focus on that. But I, I don't know. I just I'm fascinated by our our kind of collective need for something to have a cool origin story. Well, I think, you know, it's not even just the – it's not even just the tech world or, or anything like that. I feel like to some degree because we have decided that we have to um, we have to give people a reason to be mm-hmm. invested in products beyond just they're good. Right. I think that that has led a lot of people to go overboard in promoting these origin stories as if they are a – a reason unto themselves to buy the product or or you know get engaged with the product and and I, I look i think that a, a lot of people who are consumers are psychologically attracted to those sorts of things because at the end of the day most of us want to feel like we belong to something that the majority of other people do not or mm-hmm. that the things that we belong to are special or in some way represent our values and so you know, I mean, the one that you, the one that you, uh, that you sent to me, where you know the 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 person's talking about, you know, oh, it's two moms that wanted healthier snacks that didn't scrape right. on the flavor. Well, God, who doesn't feel that way? And exactly, you know, and, it yeah. was, and it's two moms, and you know, they really wanted they really wanted healthy food for their kids. And, I mean, then then you feel a psychological boost because you're not just eating this because it tastes good. You're not just feeding it to your kids because it tastes good. You're, you're right. eating it and you're, you're supporting some kind of grander ideal. Like, uh, like, like it, it emulates a way to live that you really want to emulate. Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. And I really find that funny when you start looking at, at, at food packages and it's always, you know, moms or dads just trying to make something for their kids. Yeah, it's all and, bullshit. You know, it, it is. It's all. It's just. It's all. Look. I mean. And and that's. I don't mind it in in as much as I don't care. Like I. I really don't. Like you know the. As far as I'm concerned, like you know Dick Cheney and Monsanto could get together and make my popcorn as long as it tasted really good at the end of the day. You know. I mean. It, it's. It's cool to me. But. Um. But a lot of people really. They really really get. Uh, a certain thrill out of feeling like they are like either their values are being affirmed or they are affirming values that they want to see emulated elsewhere. Right. Exactly. Um, By the way, uh, Snick Diddy uh, comes from uh, a teacher once referred to uh, the mom's kids as being persnickety. 
and the kids' version of that snickety is what stuck. Aww. So, all right, we, we, we they were okay. I, I I need to say they were really good. Um, but um, so we so we have the one uh one topic and one thing on origin stories. I will put in to show notes. This American Life a couple years ago had a uh a thing uh, a, a, an episode about origin stories. Kind of one of the things that got me thinking about on this line. So that's in show notes. Sportsmediaguy.com. Click on the flip side tab. By the way, our origin story. I want. I always wanted to tell the origin story of our name. Yes. Because I'm, I'm really proud of this. So Galen and I have done lots of podcasts and video casts together. We did uh, Sports Politic, the Sports.com Research Alliance show. And I'm assuming this was always your thing, you know, just dating back to your broadcast days. But you always, always signed off no matter what the topic was and catch you on the flip side. Yes. Is that now? Is that your like longstanding sign off from your days? Since I was in college, that was my sign Awesome. Off. All right. And so when, when when we started talking about, well, let's do a podcast together, well, what we're going to call it, I'm like, well, this has to be the flip side. Like, this is what we are, what, yeah. what everyone is finally catching us on. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, you know, um, so one of my, one of the, the, the people that I really looked up to as a broadcaster and, and really kind of uh, was, got me interested in broadcasting is Don Fisher, who's the play by play voice for IU basketball and IU football. And his, his like sign off line is uh, so long, everybody. Like that's his la- like oh, okay. the last thing he yeah. says always. And so when I started broadcasting, I would kind of subconsciously I would I would that would slip in. That would be the last thing I would say. And after a while, I was like, you know, you really need to kind of get your own thing. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't even remember where I first did it or when or or how it came about. But I I said, you know, we'll catch you folks on the flip side. And then I said, so long, everybody. And it's mm-hmm. just stuck with me ever since. And yeah, I did that th- all throughout my professional broadcasting career, and I've done it on every, on, on every podcast that I've done. And you know, mm-hmm. it's I think it's cool. I'm glad I'm glad that that ended up being the name of the pod. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So everyone who has ever listened to Galen, this is what he was referring to. That's right. At the end of every everything. So okay, last topic. You you suggested this one, so I'll let you uh, set it up. Well, there's no setup. It's just a question. Yeah, so the uh, the question that I had was, what, what is the best cut of steak? And this is actually becoming uh, harder for me to, uh, to answer as I get older in life because okay. I, I think I knew this answer a lot better, say, five years ago okay. when, when my exposure to cuts of steak were probably limited to like four. Um, and then all of a sudden I started like purposely going out and buying other types of cuts of steak and learning how to cook other cuts of steak. And, right. and you know, knowledge always makes life more complicated. And that's kind of what's happened here. So I wanted to, I wanted to hear from you first what you thought okay. uh, the best cut of steak is and what your rationale is. All right. So I, 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 as we've dealt with on both of our season, season one and season two food shows, you are much more – Develop and know a lot more about cooking and cuisine than I do. And I'm not sandbagging. That's just absolutely the way kind of our experience level. So I, 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 I hesitate to say what's best because I have not I don't have the the range of experience that you that you go with. Um, so I'm I, I, I'm going to I have a one and a one a and they're both cliche. So whatever um, the, my my one cliche is the filet. Um, mainly because I don't think you, it, you can go wrong with it, but it's hard to go wrong with, with a good, well-prepared, well-seasoned, well-cut, well-cooked well filet mignon. 
Okay. Always, always good. You know, that, that's kind of the, and it, and it does always kind of have the feel of, of something fancy or something nice. Um, I, I, I've also had very, uh, very good, um, Delmonico's before. So I'm, mm-hmm. a, I, I'm a fan of that cut. Um, I do want to, and I, you're probably getting into this. I want to get into the, the flank steaks and the, and, and like the, the more butcher's cut, um, which I'm sure you're going to be, be, uh, lauding here, but I'll go from my experiences, the filet and the Delmonico is my top two. Gotcha. Well, and look, I, and I think that those are those are good. My, you know, my big issue with the fillet, we just bought some. They just had some some grass fed beef fillets uh, that they sold at uh, the lo- local butcher store the other day. Or was it from Dick Ch- from Dick Cheney and Monsanto. That's right. Yeah, Monsanto yeah. delivered them directly. No, I don't think they're. I don't think Monsanto is giving anybody grass fed beef. Um, but something. Uh, yeah, but you know, but I will say this. Uh, my biggest issue with the fillet is that. It's very tender. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a tremendous amount of flavor to it. It's it's got great great texture, right? Um, but the flavor is almost all external, generally speaking, and and that is a problem for me. Um, okay. So I kind of take that one off the board. I mean, I've, I like fillet. Actually, Katie had never had my wife had never had a fillet before, uh, oh, wow. uh, so that was cool to be able to 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 give her that. Um, you know, because it's just not, you know, a lot of times you go to the the restaurant, you know, you're not going to order filet off the menu. Like that's normally like overwhelmingly priced and you're like, "Eh, right. Yeah. Not so much. Uh, look, I've always been, um, I've always, I mean, look, it's, (laughs) this is a silly one to argue for because it's like the, the Cadillac of steak cuts, but right. it's hard to argue with the porterhouse. I mean, the porterhouse right. is basically, well, okay. People need to understand like how, um, how the bones work. So like the T bone, people <laughs> like the T bone, right? And a lot of people right. like T bone. Do you know what the T bone is? The T bone is the porterhouse and the I don't know the actual bone. The bone holds muscle together and keeps the cow standing. That's what I know about a bone well, right. and a cow. But the t- but the, but I'm saying there's there's the T bone steak and then there's the porterhouse it, it, steak. So isn't the isn't the T bone? Uh, uh, I'm going to show my ignorance. Isn't that the porterhouse and the fillet combined at the at the T? It's not the fillet. It's not the porterhouse and the fillet. It's the strip steak and the and the and the fillet. Okay. So so if you've ever had a New York strip. That's the mm-hmm. strip steak. So that's the bigger gotcha. half of the T-bone. And then right. the the smaller part of the T-bone is the filet okay, and, or the tenderloin. Um, the, right. and, and so the porterhouse is basically further down where you've got a larger section of tenderloin. So mm-hmm. the tenderloin is, is a really awesome, you know, part of that, that steak. And, right. and, you know, and I love the T-bone, but the porterhouse gives you a little bit more. Plus, I, I think... As much as I love the ribeye, and I'm I'm uh, I'm a big fan of the Delmonico ribeye, I do believe that the the bone gives more flavor. Uh, it 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 allows that area of the steak to be just slightly cooler, which I think is is better. How do you take your mm-hmm. steak from a cooking perspective? I am kind of curious uh, about this. Generally, medium. I've been working my way into a medium rare. Okay. I mean, it's it's well worth the the walk into the medium rare. I yes. mean, it really is. And yeah. uh, you know, it's just it's hard for me to take people seriously that get their steaks well done. I mean, it you, oh, yeah. you can do it, but it's just like, man, why? But I will say, <laughs> I will say, um, 
I'm not a big fan of sirloin. Like the top sirloin, I'm I'm just that's that's okay. I'm, I'm not really digging that um, most of the time. But you mentioned flank steak and skirt steak, and both of those mm-hmm. are really really. Um, I find them to be more and more uh, exciting and flavorful as time goes by. And yeah. I, and, I, and I think that it's a very different method of cooking in that uh, I generally, you, you cook it much hotter. You cook it with, a, like, I, I generally cook with just salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but if you cook it just right and if you learn to kind of, like, release your inhibitions about your your the outside of your beef burning a little bit. Right. Uh, I know there, there's actually a recipe for flank steak where you just put it directly on the coals. Like literally, really? like you just take the grill top off, you put it directly on the coals, you flip it once, and then you pull it off and you dust all of the the uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the charcoal powder off and you eat it. And I'm like, damn, okay, that's hardcore. I haven't done that one yet. Right. But um, – you know, I think the 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 South Americans have have something going here. With you know, if you ever go to a Tarasca, you ever been to like an Argentinian steakhouse? No, we had this discussion last time. We still have not been to the Argentinian or Brazil, Texas de Brazil, or any of those places yet. Well, okay. Well, you, you need to do okay. The Texas we need de, to do both. I'm Texas right, yeah. de Brazil, yeah, that's a different story. Like the Argentinian steakhouse, you get the chimichurri sauce. With the, oh, with yeah. The flank you steak. still owe me a recipe for that, by the way. I've been well, waiting for your chimichurri and and I, I, uh, I want you to I want you to go experience it in a restaurant first because I, I want okay. you then to be able to take that flavor and bring it home. Because gotcha. if I just give you the recipe and you don't know what you're going for, I mean, it would be like it'd be like somebody who's never eaten pizza, like giving them all the recipes and saying, okay. "Here's how you make pizza." Even if they make it properly, they won't really know. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so so um, um, I it, it's funny. I've been I, I I've been looking at more like skirt steak and flank steak because you know doing that you know talking to you and reading friends of mine who write about food and and and, and being able to use those cuts and it does seem like like one of the advantages on them and a lot those cuts that you don't get out of even a porterhouse but especially like a fillet is the versatility. Like you can have it, you you can slice it, you can make it into steak sandwiches, you can do a lot with it. Whereas a fillet, because it because of like the uh, the the feel of it, not the the, the feel the, the feel around it, not the feel of the actual steak, but it feels like you're not going to cut up a fillet for a steak sandwich. Whereas you could do something like that with a with a flank steak or a sirloin or or something like that. So um, I'm well, really interested. But, but here's the thing. They've gotten so damn expensive because all the hipsters are 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 into these cuts now. Well, but they used to be, that used to be the advantage was that they were they were dirt cheap, but true. now but now they they they've raised in price, and maybe I just need to find a different. I, I need to find a butcher that is kind of more immune to that. But where we shop, it tends to be still pretty pricey for those cuts. For the for the flank and the and the skirt yeah. steak. Well, I yeah. mean, and that's the thing. I mean, to some degree, you want to get the prepackaged stuff just because you're not going to get that, especially butchered generally by the by the local butcher. Right. Um, you know, I, I mean, generally, you know, we're I think we're in the six six ninety nine to eight ninety nine range here for those cuts. Okay. Um, which is about that's pretty reasonable for that amount, and, sure. and you end up getting a good amount of beef out of it. Um, that's the, I will say this one thing for those of you out there who are, you know, interested in steak, like you really, you really, I almost feel bad for people that go and they buy steak and it's, they buy choice and they buy like the pre-cut, the, the stuff that they, they, they pre-cut and put out into the, into the, right. the, the display cases for you. Like right. you really, you really have to 
just just pony up the extra money if you're going to do steak. Like, there's no point in getting like a nine ninety nine choice cut of steak if it's no good. Like, it's better to right. like just spend the extra five dollars a pound if you really want steak and get the get the prime. And keep in mm-hmm. mind, there, there's one thing about steak, and this doesn't so much matter with the flank and the skirt steak, but it certainly matters with the the, the regular steak cuts. Angus beef has nothing to do with the quality of the steak. Right, that's just the name. It's just a brand name. Like that's right. that's something that people uh I they've been kind of bamboozled into believing over the course of time and it's unfortunate, but that's that's the way that that uh that's the way that that commerce goes, I guess. Mm. Um but no the you know the prime prime cut beef is is a delicacy. It's something that you know, if you ever see it on sale, just buy it. And even if you weren't planning on cooking it for dinner, cook it for dinner. Keep, right. you know, I mean, th- there's so many great things you can do with that with, with that type of, of, of beef steak-wise. It's just you got to learn how to, like, like treat it well. And mm-hmm. it takes some trial and error. And there's some steak cuts, like like flank steak or skirt steak, that you can you cook them rare or cook them medium rare, but you don't have to treat them – you know, with as much a kid gloves as you do sometimes regular steak, unless you're really, really good with a charcoal grill. Right. So, uh, always, so always good talking food and now I'm hungry and, um, now I want steak, which is really awkward at 10, 15 <laughs> at night as we're recording this. Um, but no, I think we've helped a lot of people today. Yeah, and by the goal. way, I did, I did check with both Wikipedia, which is never wrong, and my wife, which is never who is never wrong on the Brady Bunch. And not only was it season three that they went to the Grand Canyon, it was their season three premiere wow. that they went to the Grand, the Grand Canyon. And I, I humbly think we've outdone them. Well, I mean, they certainly didn't talk about steak on the season three premiere of the Brady Bunch. You're, you know, you know, no, Jan was not talking about what to do with a good, how to cook a good <laughs> flank steak. So, you know, that's their 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 loss is our gain. That's is right. what I'm saying here. So. Well, all right. Well, hey, this was fun as always, and uh, we'll look forward to doing this every night. Uh, we record Tuesday nights generally right after dog obedience training, so I'm in a great oh. mood. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so we'll uh, we'll hopefully have this up every Wednesday. And, uh, Brian, it was a fun time as always. As always, good to be back. Good to uh, – and, and I hope uh, obedience training with the Nelson Channel goes well. We'll uh, we'll keep everybody apprised on Instagram about how that goes. But uh, beautiful. Anyway, for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clavio. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. We will catch you on the flip side. So long. Bye.